Welcome to Equosity, the podcast about all things equine, with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexander Kurland. I'm the author of Modern Horse Training and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. And we're also joined today by Dr. Clara St. Peter. And in chatting, just as we were getting ourselves organized, we find that you need to update your intro for us. So tell us, because so it's I exciting am, news. It, it is exciting. So I am still a professor of psychology at West Virginia University, but I am now serving as the chair of our department. So this is an opportunity for me to take constructional approaches and apply them to helping faculty be successful. So it's wow. one layer up. So I'm still staying active in my work in the public school system, but I'm also now helping to support a bunch of faculty in my department. So it's exciting. It's exciting yes, times. Very exciting times. And so a couple, just to, can you share just a couple of some of the, the things you've been learning? What are some of the discoveries as you move to uh, working with the faculty in addition to everything else? Yeah, I think... This is probably the case in many jobs, but I only know mine. But there are so many pieces of what people do that you don't realize they're doing until you really get a chance to work with them. You know, when you're colleagues, you don't realize all the depth of, of interest and experience. And so it's been really fun to learn more about the specific areas of expertise that the faculty here all bring mm. to the table and how we can work together to build those individual units into a bigger, stronger collective. I think that's been one of the fun things to learn about. And, and the faculty at my in my department are just absolutely spectacular. So it's doubly fun because we have a bunch of really engaged and excited people who are doing really good work. So that's been that's been good and, and interesting to learn about. And I've been working on faculty workload plans, which sounds very stodgy and probably is, but it's been a, a chance to figure out like how to leverage the faculty's expertise and get them teaching the things yeah. that are going to have the biggest impact and getting them the resources that they need in an environment that is not otherwise resource rich at the moment. So being creative, I've learned a lot of things about budgeting that I never wanted to learn, but here we are. <laughs> here you are. Well, then we are doubly appreciative of the time that you've carved out for us, because I'm sure in this new position that time is precious, that it's a very precious, it's a precious commodity. So we will hopefully make good use of the time that we have together. So I haven't even said hello to Dominique. You popped right in and <laughs> we, were, we were already in, in conversation. So I think we wanted to continue this this conversation about schedules. But in some of the email exchanges that we've had, I think there is another, and I, want, I don't know whether it's a deeper question, but maybe a more basic question, which goes to definitions. And maybe, you know, part of this is, how can we get more and more people interested in behavioral analysis so that you have students knocking on your door saying, let us in, let us in, let us in, we want to learn more, we want to learn more. And some of the things that keep people from wanting to learn more is, first of all, they don't know that behavior analysis exists or where to find it, which is a problem. 
And then often when they encounter it, they find themselves walking away feeling really confused. So we had that wonderful, wonderful, wonderful conversation with Dr. Cho Lang on schedules. And there were things in that that left us going, wait a minute, <laughs> our heads are spinning. And one of the head spinning pieces, it turns out, is just a basic definition of shaping, which I thought we kind of understood, but it turns out that yes, we each individually understand what we mean, but that doesn't mean that the next person understands what I mean or the other person means by shaping. And so we wanna think about what does shaping mean and what does it mean in different communities? And then how do we help with this whole, what are we talking about so we can talk to one another? And then we can launch into schedules. So how does, how, where, so given all of that, you can ignore all of that and jump in with something else or you can jump in with that. So just jump in. Uh, yeah, sure. I'd be happy to jump in. So I think your point about accessibility of behavior analysis is really well taken. And in fact, it's something that is supported in the literature and that behavior analysts have known about. There's these series of studies where behavior analysts have described things to lay people and then said, like, how acceptable do you find that language? Like, would you be able to do anything with the words that I just told you? And people, non-behavior analytic people, almost uniformly say no, that makes <laughs> no sense to me. So, so what's really interesting is that I think we've known, behavior analysts have known for a while that our language can be a barrier and yet we have trouble, I think, oh. stepping out of it and, and talking about the science of behavior in ways that are meaningful to people, which is a real shame because the science of behavior is all around us. Right. It's so useful with so yes. many things. And and actually we're all interested in it because mm. you know, we're all interested in each other's behavior. <laughs> you know, there's you you read the news and it's all about people behaving in sometimes in in wondrous ways and sometimes in ways that make your head scratch. You go, why is that person doing that? We're interested in behavior. So it's it's the pathway to results. Yeah. So so it's it's interesting that we've come up with ways that make it so hard to talk about behavior and in training you know there's that expression of you can't take something away without putting something else in its place so it's all well and good to say oh yes there's a problem scientists can talk to one another but nobody else can understand what they're saying unless you come up with what is a, an acceptable solution or alternative, then there's always going to be this problem. And that's too bad because we really do need to understand more about behavior. We, I've certainly seen how useful it is to have these discussions when I'm back out in the barn. I'm a much better trainer because I've had these conversations. Mm -hmm. Well, I think the solution is what you're doing. So the mm -hmm. solution is that we need to have the conversations with each other and to really talk about what we mean, you know, if we're going to use technical language and technical terms like shaping, like what do we mean by those and where are we drawing the boundaries and what we would include and not include within that concept, because that's how we, we learn from each other. And that's also how we 
figure out where we sit on particular issues. So we might not all come to the same conclusion about where we would draw those boundaries. And that's okay. We can still have good communication about it so long as we have a sense of where are the people that we're talking to are, are coming from. Too. So, and, and an understanding that there are these different shades to the definition that, that really matter in terms of your understanding what the person is talking about and what, what sits within the boundaries and, and why these conclusions are being drawn because it's all based on this understanding of this particular term. And yeah, we, and we all learn words based on who we talk to. Yes. So the way that we use words is different based on who we spend time talking to. And you can see that culturally, just in how people talk broadly, and you certainly see it specifically. And I think that you see it with shaping. So with shaping, there is a, a generation of behavior analysts that would talk about differentiating between building a behavior and then maintaining that behavior. And so the building they often talked about as programs, like you're going to build a program and you're going to program for the behavior and then you have maintenance of the behavior on a schedule. And those were distinct features or distinct parts of a behavior building process. And I think there's another generation of behavior analysts that views those two pieces as being part of the same whole. And they probably use shaping, the word shaping more broadly to talk about both sides of that coin. There's more, I think we have to draw on a little more history, don't we, in terms of what is meant by shaping. And then what does, what does maintaining behavior mean? Because since, since animals Nobody produces carbon copies. How do you maintain something that is not a series of carbon copies? So there's that question. But and, and you can you can interrupt me at any point where I start to go completely off the rails. But the Skinner box, you've got a rat or a pigeon, but we'll call it, we'll say a rat pushing a lever or a pigeon pecking a key. And there's a machine that is recording the number of lever presses. That machine doesn't care if the rat is pressing the lever with his right paw, his left paw, his nose, his tail, sitting on it, you know, whatever. It's just saying, ah, number of lever presses. So the topography of the behavior wasn't being taken into account. So that has to affect how some of these terms were used interpreted, developed, it has to affect how people talked about schedules. Because in the training world, we are very much interested in, did the horse step with his right front foot, his left front foot? He's got four legs, which one, which one moved? What's he doing with his, his, his head, his neck, his top line? We're, we're looking at the wholeness of the behavior, even when we are in slicing and looking at really small movements within the whole horse. So how does that early start where they were looking at lever presses, how does that affect the early definitions of shaping and how have those definitions changed over time? Have they changed over time? 
what are we talking about when we say shaping, in other words? And through the decades, has that definition changed? Because we take it, and I'm sort of babbling, but it gives you time to organize your thoughts. You know, when we, we jump into clicker training and we say, oh, yes, we're shaping behavior. And, and there's sort of a, we sort of think that we know what that means. And then we run into people like you and we say, oh, wait a minute. What are we talking about? Do we understand what shaping means? And it's a pretty fundamental, pretty fundamental to, to the training that we're doing. Yeah, I think that the original forms of shaping, well, let me give you the caveat that this is all before my time, right? Like we should really get one of the pioneers of behavior analysis, like Charlie Catania on here. Who, Charlie was one of Skinner's students, right? Who could talk to you about way back, how did they yes. use these words? But I'll give you my take as someone who's relatively newer to behavior analysis. And so my understanding of this is that early forms of when shaping was used, it was focused a lot on the, the form of the behavior. So you wanted to develop a new form of a behavior. You wanted to get the rat to press the lever. And maybe that means that you start delivering reinforcers when they take one step towards the lever or two steps towards the lever, put any portion of their body on the lever. And so that was done with what was called hand shaping. And so the experimenter essentially was operating the, the food delivery dispenser by hand. It wasn't automated. So, because you're right, when you say like, once you have the behavior built in its, in the form that you want in an operant chamber, so you have a rat who's pressing a lever, the experimenter generally isn't sitting there delivering the reinforcers that gets turned over to a computer program. And when the schedule is met, so when the, the learner completes whatever the time spacing or response spacing or response requirement, and then a reinforcer is delivered. So shaping was then viewed as those early steps towards that final behavior that you then maintained on a schedule. But I think in my generation, in my thinking about things, I think about shaping more broadly. I think about shaping more the way that you've been talking about it and in your ramblings, I think you said. Yes. So in that we're always changing little aspects of the behavior. And so there's this interface between the form of the behavior, how long the learner will do the behavior, the schedule that that's maintained on. And so you can also think about shaping being broader, that it is not just getting that form of the behavior, not just what closes the micro switch, the little electrical switch in the chamber, but like what exactly does that look like? And how do we change how that behavior looks as a function of what we do with the schedules? And I'll give you a, what I think is an interesting example of this. So you mentioned pigeons, pecking keys and chambers. And pecking is actually pretty easy to shape. There's actually, there's a process called auto shaping that doesn't require even hand shaping of things. Essentially, if you put a pigeon in a chamber and you light a key, the pigeon will peck the key. It appears to be associated with the genetics of pigeons. So you can get pecking at things pretty easily with a pigeon, which is a nice feature. And so you can get pecks and pecks look like pecks, you know, like the 
bird's beak hits the key and it closes a switch behind the key and then they remove their beak from the key. But if you set a particular schedule or schedule requirement high enough, you get a change in the form of the pecking and you get what's called trilling the key. And when a pigeon trills the key instead of pecking, so taking their beak and pressing the key and taking it back and pressing the key, they rapidly open and close their beak wow. on the key. And by rapidly opening and closing their beak on the key, they're often able to exert enough force on the key that they can have a quicker run with lower effort than they would if they had to go back and forth and back and forth yeah. and back and forth and back and forth. <clears throat> And so I think many of my basic research colleagues wouldn't think about that as shaping, but they are in fact changing how the response looks yes. as a function of how they're changing the schedule and maintaining the response. And they're saying it's maintained because it still closes that switch, right? So if that's how you've defined the behavior is it's any response that has this outcome in the environment, it's any response that closes that switch, then you're maintaining that behavior, even though the form of it might look different across time. Does that make sense? It does, it does. Yeah. So in terms of schedules, what is it that we should be paying attention to as trainers? What, what makes the most sense that we should be really focusing on to understand? I think that knowing different schedules produce different patterns of behavior is useful. And there are side effects of schedules that might be useful to know. So for example, as a side effect, a lot of trainers use continuous reinforcement. So every response results in a reinforcer. Yep. And continuous reinforcement has a, lot of, has a lot of value to it because it gives a lot of feedback to yep. the learner, right? Like your learner knows if they have met your requirement or not because every response that meets the requirement results in the delivery of a reinforcer. So there's lots and lots of feedback. Yep. And if you think about that in contrast to an arrangement where every fifth response results in the reinforcer, you have four instances of behavior where the learner doesn't really get any feedback along the way. So they don't know that they are necessarily incrementing that requirement, that they're meeting that requirement that, oh, I've done one, I've done two, I've done three, I've done four, yeah. because our learners don't have handy little progress bars in their training where they can say, oh, I'm almost there. And the, the yep, last yep, one yep. is just about to come. And in fact, if you give learners progress bars, so there's a researcher named Tim Hackenberg who did that. He gave pigeons progress bars, essentially, in their ratio requirements where an LED light would light up in the chamber every time the pigeon had completed a response that met the requirement, changes the way that the pigeon responds and changes the patterns. So it's interesting to think about the amount of feedback that a learner is getting. And those continuous reinforcement schedules are probably pretty valuable to trainers because animals just get so much feedback from yeah. them. Yeah. But also continuous reinforcement schedules are the most likely to result in rapid extinction of behavior. And that's because think about it. If you're getting lots of feedback and I'm saying, yep, Dominique, that was right. Yep. 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 
And then she stopped nodding her head. Why? Because I stopped saying yep. And I stopped saying yep right away. And Dominique stopped nodding her head right away. <laughs> so that, that took us, what, a seven second demonstration of FR1 of a continuous reinforcement oh. or a fixed ratio one. And I'm going to use those terms to mean the same thing. So continuous reinforcement, fixed ratio of one, FR1, all just means every response results in a reinforcer. Boy, Dominique stopped nodding her head <laughs> immediately as soon as I stopped saying, yep, it's too bad that your listeners can't see the video of it, <laughs> right? And, and that's what's going to happen with our learners. So if you want a behavior that is going to persist when you're not catching every response, it can be really hard to build that unless you do something where you shift from every response results in a reinforcer to something that's a little more intermittent because your learner is, ex is expecting that feedback. And when they get the absence, they take the absence of feedback as, well, that didn't meet the requirement. I should try oh. something else. Mm -hmm. So really useful for shaping though. Right, because you can get changes in the behavior pretty rapidly if previously every response, when you when you get into a loop and you meet the requirement and it, and it starts to look a little cleaner, it pays off in a reinforcer. And then when you change the requirement and it doesn't result in a reinforcer that very first time, your learner is likely to do something different. And that's really handy. It means you can move your shaping process along really fast. But sometimes you don't want that. Sometimes you don't want them to do something different the next time. And so that's where you need to pay attention to what the schedule is. And, and you need to be thinking about the schedule ahead of time. Because you can't just jump from every one. One thing that I see people do, it probably happens with trainers. I see it with teachers all the time, is they teach something and they're giving lots of frequent feedback. And then they say like, well, my learner has learned it. I don't know that they say it outright, but they seem to behave as yeah. if they say, my learner has learned it as if that is like some permanent state and it is now like imprinted in the organism, in the learner somewhere. And then they drop the reinforcers out for it, yeah. right? And they move on to something else. Like, and now I'm going to teach the next thing. Yes. And they expect that first behavior just to come back and to stay and they're not going to give lots of reinforcers for it anymore. And that first taught behavior really starts to fall apart. And it's because they weren't thoughtful enough about the schedule and how they were going to move from that. Every response produces a reinforcer schedule to something that's more intermittent. So that's another area where I think trainers might think about schedules. Simple schedules. And here we're talking about simple schedules, right? Like the fixed ratio, fixed interval, yeah. one thing at a time schedules. Uh, but if you do it incrementally, it would be actually stronger, like you just said, to extinction. Mm -hmm. So I think for me, the distinction that was made during Joe's podcast between the shaping and the maintaining was useful. Because I've asked this question so many times over the podcast to different guests and should we be ping-ponging when we're, when we're shaping, you know? Or actually, I wasn't saying when we're shaping. I wasn't even making the, the distinction. I was just asking about this strategy of sometimes reinforcing two responses, sometimes five, and going back and forth which really 
is a is a variable racial schedule. You know, the for me, that one of the takeaways from that podcast was, well, until you've gotten the behavior that you're after, and I know that this is not something getting to the behavior you're after may change over time, mm-hmm. but when you start, you have some image in your mind of what you want your horse to do. And so to take away the fact that the most efficient strategy to get there, the best schedule to get there would be continuous reinforcement. And then once you have the behavior that you want, and you know, one example that was given was like, let's say you have a dog and he has a really good recall. You have gotten the behavior, he comes back every time you call him, but you don't necessarily want to reinforce it every time when you're out in nature for the rest of their life. Well, you can start to use an intermittent schedule slowly to be able not to have to reinforce every time the dog comes back to you. And the added value, I suppose, is that that behavior will be very resistant to extinction, like you just said. So it seemed useful to me to to have that distinction between what's the best schedule during shaping and and when is it time to use a ping pong strategy, for instance. So I kind of, you know, I've been asking this question for so long and now I'm not going to ask the question anymore because it's, and maybe I should, but it's, it seemed to have clarified it for me. Well, we'll still give it as it's been asked. So Claire, jump what in. What do you think? I I love your characterization though, Dominique, and, and your use of variable ratio schedule was right on point. I think, you know, when I think about your descriptions of the ping pong strategy, that's exactly what I think about is that you're using a variable ratio when you're using the ping pong strategy. So if you ever want to talk to a behavior analyst about it, I think that's the technical term that I'd pull out of my hat for it. I, I think that because I'm a behavior analyst, I should make things modestly more complicated. Uh, <laughs> it seems to be our role. And say, even when you get to that point of maintaining that depending on how you arrange when you're delivering reinforcers and how you're delivering reinforcers, you will probably still change some aspects of the behavior, right? Even when it is at something that looks pretty consistent and steady, and we call that steady state in the field, like you're getting really reliable behavior. But I think if you're continuing to change your schedule, over time, you said very gradually, that's what made me clue into this continued change in it over time. Mm -hmm. You might expect the behavior to continue to change a little bit over time too. Or when you change your schedule, if you get a disruption in the, in a behavior that you want to keep, maybe you took a leap that was a little too big. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was just talking with one of my students about changing schedules. The other day, we had a behavior that we wanted to maintain In this case, it was actually independent math work for a student in the public schools. And we had built it on a a continuous reinforcement schedule and we teachers can't do continuous reinforcement schedules. So we wanted to make this something that was more practical. Mm. And we jumped from requiring one response to requiring two responses to earn a reinforcer. And the behavior completely fell apart. Mm. 
And so I said to her, you know, one of the things to think about is like, we took a step that was too big. Mm-hmm. And I, I think people don't always think about like, well, you went from one to two mm-hmm. and how is that too, how is that too big? And what we ended up doing was, is shifting and, and thinking about your ping pong strategy and like micro ponging <laughs> is we took blocks of 10 responses and then said, well, we're going to reinforce now eight in the 10 responses. Well, that's not requiring two responses for a reinforcer, mm. right? It's, it's requiring 1.2 responses for a reinforcer on average, right? And now we're going to require six out of, like we're going to reinforce six out of every 10. And you get to the point when you get to five out of every 10 that you're doing essentially two responses for a reinforcer, but we had to go even slower than going just from one to two Mm -hmm. for this learner. So I think it's interesting. Those things are useful to know about, right? Like if you see deteriorations, can you think creatively about how to rearrange your schedule so that you can get and keep the behavior that you want? Yeah, and I think what you just said can be used in horse training because sometimes when you're, whether you want two steps or whether you want two seconds, sometimes it is too big of a leap. And so that means you would, let's say, on 10 trials, you would reinforce continuously six and randomly there are four that would not get reinforced. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, I think that could apply. Do you think? I, I do think, but I think you all are savvier than the rest of us. And and the reason that I think that is, I think you described it how I would do it and how we did do it with the student, which is randomly slash quasi randomly, we're going to pick which ones are going to take a little bit longer. And what I have seen from the work that I have been fortunate to do with animal trainers is that is that animal trainers tend to, I think, be a little savvier about how they do it, right? Like you want to build two seconds of grownups are talking and they happen to be st- standing particularly square and particularly beautifully. And you get this sense that I could maybe keep this for three seconds this time. And so that's the one where you click it too. And I think that's savvier and smarter than probably how any Skinner box would do it, but certainly even savvier and smarter often than how I've done it. I've used the strategy when working with students. So I think, you know, animal trainers have a leg up on this idea of using schedules to their benefit and building new behavior. Because that, <laughs> that shaping plus maintaining piece, right? You're at the point that you have the behavior well enough form-wise that you want to change how long you have it or how many of it you have, but you're still being really strategic about where you're putting those reinforcers to continue to build it and build that duration. Because that, that ties into... a a question that I want to pose on behalf of somebody who is fairly new to all of these ideas into training, because I can imagine somebody hearing continuous reinforcement and just wanting to run screaming to the hills as they think about, I don't know, some three or four-year-old toddler where they're constantly giving them M&Ms or Cheerios or whatever it is that you give four-year-olds to keep them from tearing the house apart, you know, continuous reinforcement. What do you, you know, does that mean I'm going to be constantly having to reinforce every little thing that my animal does? So 
when we talk about continuous reinforcement, that's another one of these terms that I think we have to clarify and we have to clarify it procedurally so that people can understand what it is that we're talking about and not just think that we're food shovers, reinforcement shovers, you know, so. And I have seen people misinterpret continuous reinforcement in that way. And they'll say, I heard that I should use continuous reinforcement. And what you see them do is like just free food, just a bunch of free food. And so that's not what I am talking about when I'm talking about continuous reinforcement. So continuous reinforcement here just means that you have a particular response that you're looking to reinforce. And that can be early during the shaping process. So it could be some kernel of the final response. You know, it might be that muscle movement that you want to shape into a a beautiful leg lift, but right now it's a twitch of the pectoral muscle, right? And so there's definitely a requirement there for a particular response. And it's just that every time that that response, you're at this stage of your shaping, that it's going to pay off. It's going to result in a reinforcer. Now, in the shaping process, if you're doing it really well, you can move really fast. So you can get, you know, the, that twitch of the pectoral muscle, and you might only need a handful of repetitions of that before you're getting it really regularly. And you can change your requirement and say like, well, now it has to be like a Uh, more marked twitch. I want to see movement of the shoulder, like a twitch that results in a little bit of movement of the shoulder or a lift at the base of the neck. And I'm looking for the twitch that's accompanied by a lift of the base of the neck. And you're starting to see some of those already. You know that it's it's something that the learner is doing. That's the Um, key. mm -hmm. Because, Because if, so from a training point of view, if I say, okay, my Learner is now giving me that little muscle twitch across the chest and it's time to move on. So I'm now going to change my requirement. And I know that when I change my requirement, I will very quickly get an extinction process and maybe I'll ride that extinction process to hope that the next thing that I want will pop out. And so now what I want is for the learner to have more lift from the base of the neck or a more definite lift. But it may be that the learner has not yet produced that behavior. But I've decided, because I've trained this before, I know what it looks like. I know what I'm after. The last 10 horses all lifted beautifully from the base of the neck. It's time. It is now time for this horse to lift from the base of his neck. So I'm no longer going to reinforce just the muscle twitch. I am now waiting for the lift from the base of the neck. This individual has different history, different confirmation. Yeah, it, it's like, oh, you want me, I, I don't know what you want. Do you want me to put my, my nose up in the air? So my, do you want me to swish my tail? I can do that because I'm getting really frustrated. I can definitely swish my tail. Maybe I'll try biting you because I can definitely do that. But what we want to do instead is we are observing that as you get this twitch, other things begin to happen that, first of all, you don't get carbon copies, but also that movement of muscles there, the hip bones connected to the thigh bone and all of that begins to generate other versions, additional changes in the behavior. 
and you see popping out the lift of the base of the neck. You see it occurring. And so now it's fair game to go after it in the shaping. So you can say, now it's already occurring. I'm going to shift my criteria to the lift of the base of the neck. And that's why when you become reasonably adept at that, you can move your shaping along really smoothly and really rapidly because the behavior is already occurring. You're not waiting for your learner to through some wild experimentation and frustration. You're not, you're not waiting for something that is not happening. So that means that you may need to be skilled at looking for smaller slices. Yes. Because you might not get to the point with this particular learner that you get a full lift of the base of the neck. And so if you, I think the other thing about not waiting is you don't want to wait an extinction for it to happen, but you also interestingly don't want to wait for it to happen without changing anything else in your initial continuous reinforcement of the the first response, that flex of the pecs muscle, you don't want to wait there either because you need some amount of variability in the behavior yes. to be able to capture that next mm -hmm. response. And so that if you're not getting it and you've been just reinforcing this pecs twitch, you know, and that's what you've been doing for a month, um, <laughs> you probably are going to be in a little bit of trouble that you're going to mm -hmm. have to undo because you get to the point that that becomes, and I mentioned this term steady state before, yeah. that there's just so much practice of this response that you're at steady state. And when you're at steady state, you don't have, you got to do something pretty dramatic to change the behavior because you just don't have that much variability. And so you call this the glass ceiling, I think, yes. when yes. you talk because you practice something too much and then it's harder to move on because you've hit that glass ceiling in your language or you've hit steady state in my yeah. language. And what you have to do at that point is you have to change up your environment or you have to, ideally you change up your environment. I think people often just drop learners into extinction as the way to do that. And that's that has some unintended potential negative consequences associated with it for the learner. So it's walking that line. And if you're not getting it, if you're not getting the emergence of that next little bit of a thing that you could shift your criterion to, that you could shift your requirement to, it's how can you slice it finer? So can you get a slightly different orientation? Can you get a smaller movement? Can you get a smaller piece of it? Is there a different piece that you need to build first? Or can you change something about your setup, your environment, so that that next piece is more likely to emerge and you can then shift your requirements so that it's part of what is now required to earn a reinforcer. Yeah. That's so important because you can get stuck. Mm -hmm. You know, you're not getting it. <laughs> so what do you do? And so you've just given us a few options of what we should be doing when we're stuck. And I wonder, is there such a thing as, because we want to start with a small kernel We've talked many times on the podcast about the end of the funnel, flipping the funnel, not starting with so much variation at the larger end of the funnel that the animal doesn't know what you're really clicking because there's just too many behaviors there. And so Alex is 
many, many times suggested that we should flip that funnel and work with a much smaller brush and start with a much, much smaller kernel of behavior so that the animal does know what we're, we're clicking. But is there such a thing as too small of a kernel that is so small that there is no more variability? Or is that a function more of the mini extinctions and changes we're going to make than the actual smallness or size of the kernel? That's a great question. I don't, I can't think of off the top of my head, but I reserve the right eight minutes later to exclaim something else. I can't think of a situation where I would be worried for the sake of the quality of the response that the kernel was too small or that it was sliced too small. But I think what you lose, what you trade, it's not a loss, it's a trade. What you trade with a smaller kernel is sometimes you can make bigger jumps and if you're doing everything in the very smallest kernel, if you get some, sometimes in shaping, you'll get a big leap in the behavior. And if you don't, aren't willing to look at big leaps because you want to keep everything with the very teeny, teeny, tiniest shift possible, it may go slower. Like your shaping process may go slower. That said, if you take too big of a jump, your shaping process will go slower. So you know, I think it's this balance of how much, how much skill and experience do you have? So when I teach my undergraduate class in behavior analysis, I have them shape behavior and I do the first demo and I have much more experience doing it. And I know what things are going to be easy to teach given their histories. Cause my undergraduate students come in with particular histories where I They'll throw out some pretty complex behavior, but I know that they've got a history, like getting somebody to write their name. You can shape that, shape it really fast because I can arrange the environment where I know it's going to pop out. If I can get a writing utensil and something to write on in their hands, pretty much they're going to write their name or they're going to write my course number or they're going to, you know, there's only a handful of things that they're going to write. And so it, they just think it's magic, you know, that I got this person to write their name with no instructions. But I've also been doing it for a while. So I know what to catch. I know where they're going to get stuck. Yeah. I know which pieces need to be really small. I know that if they take a step away from the chalkboard and I want to get them writing on the chalkboard, I need to address that right away. And so when I turn the reins over to them and I say like, great, now you're going to have a partner and you're going to shape the behavior. They have to pick things that are smaller because they don't have the experience necessarily to when it starts to go a little egg-shaped you know like they no. just they don't know yet they don't have that discrimination down and so I think it might depend on who your learner is what their history is and what your history is as a trainer mm -hmm. um, what can you see what do you know how to see how often have you had different exemplars of teaching this kind of thing and every individual is an individual so everyone is going to teach you something different so like, I wouldn't take it personally if I can't shape something as fast as either one of you could shape it in a horse, but I could probably shape up academic skills with yes. a fourth grader <laughs> faster than you could. And it has nothing to do with our skill as behavior analysts or as shapers broadly. It just has to do with what we see when we look at a situation. Mm -hmm. So 
I think one of the useful thing for me in, in that series with Joe, which I would like to revisit with you, Claire, was the distinction he made between the requirement and the schedule. We're about to change gears somewhat, so we'll stop here for today. This was a very long conversation, so I'm going to break it up into smaller units. Next time, we'll begin with Dominique's question about requirements and schedules. I think it's great fun to think that it was just last week that I was announcing the publication of my new children's book, Teddy's to the Rescue. And this week, we have changed gears completely to talk about behavioral analysis. I'm sure if we look for them, we will find connections between an interest in science and a love of children's books. For me, they are very connected, and it makes sense that I should be indulging in both. If you haven't heard last week's episode, and you're wondering what on earth I'm talking about, I have begun a new project. Everyone should have a hobby, and I suppose if I have any sort of a hobby at all, mine would be writing children's books. I write the kind of stories that I would have enjoyed reading as a child. I've been writing children's books literally forever. They're full of magic because, of course, those are the best kinds of stories. I really do write what I would have enjoyed reading. So I've started this publishing venture with the Kenyan Bear books. These are stories that were first published in the 1980s, and they were wonderfully well-received. But as I got pulled deeper and deeper into horses and started sharing clicker training, the children's books were put on the back burner. I continued to write, but I left the publishing of the stories for another time. And it appears that that time has finally come. And, and that's in part because of COVID. In many ways, COVID simplified my life because it eliminated travel. It's amazing how much more I can get done now that I'm not spending so much time sitting on airplanes or worse yet, waiting at airports for yet another delayed flight. As you know, a great chunk of that time that I've clawed back from all that air travel, I've used to write my new book, Modern Horse Training. I know there's still a lot more that the horses want me to say about training. But now that I'm not traveling, I also have time for the children's books. So the first one I brought out is Teddy's to the Rescue, which I've just published in August of 2023. It's a chapter book for young readers. To give you a sense of what that means, here's a review that comes from the original publication of Teddy's to the Rescue. My eight-year-old son keeps your book by his bed, along with two or three other toy treasures. He looks again and again at it with his younger brother. We've read it a million times. I believe it is that book we all had as children that we'll always remember. What a great review. In last week's episode, when I announced the publication of Teddy's to the Rescue, I shared a long quote from T.E. Lawrence. T.E. Lawrence is better known to many of you as Lawrence of Arabia. 
In a letter he wrote in 1910 to his mother, he says, If you can get the right book at the right time, you taste joys, and you can never be quite the same self again. Imagination should be put into the most precious caskets. I love books, and I very much understand what he was saying. So my hope for all my books, the training books and now my children's books, is that for each of you, they will be the right book at the right time. You can read more about Teddy's To the Rescue, including the story behind it, how it came to be written, in my blog at theclickercenterblog.com. And you can order Teddy's To the Rescue through my website, theclickercenter.com. And you can also order it through Amazon and from other booksellers. And if you're outside of the United States, I recommend that you get it from Amazon so that you save on the international shipping charges. When you order the book, do please leave a five-star review. Your good reviews are great reinforcement for me, and they make it easier for others to find the books. So let me know what you think of the story. I look forward to hearing from all of you. And now let me take my writer's hat off and put my podcaster's hat back on to say that next week we're going to continue with part two of our conversation with Dr. Claire St. Peter. We'll begin by looking at the distinction between requirements and schedules. So until then, train well and have fun with your horses. Thank you.